Hey everyone, this is Dave Cruz from Flyber Labs, a podcast on business and innovation in the Midwest and beyond. Here you'll meet fascinating people and learn about new technologies and practices that will change how you look at life and business. Enjoy. Hey everyone, welcome to another episode of Flyover Labs. This is Dave Cruz from Madison, Wisconsin. And today our guest is Matthew Putman. And Matthew is the founder and CEO of Nanotronics, which has developed one of the most advanced and affordable microscopes in the world. And why does that matter? Well, they inspect and detect issues on a nano level for semiconductors, microchips, hard drives, LEDs, and other products. So that's quite interesting what they can do. Matthew is also on different boards and has been a mentor at the Teal Foundation for five years, which is pretty cool. And I'll have to ask about that. And so I invited Matthew to share more about his background and the future of uh, microscopes and how in the world do they see on a nano level? What do they see and why does it matter? So Matthew, thanks for uh, joining us today. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks. So, yeah. So typically I like to start out um, hearing about your background. So do you mind giving us sure. kind of a a little bit of an overview on how you got into nanotronics and um and i mean you're you're a part of a number of boards so um you know if there's a one or two that are of an interest maybe you could share those as well okay uh well you know i grew up as a son of an akron ohio entrepreneur um sort of a lucky thing and uh, a good place to have grown up and uh so my father and even my grandmother uh, before that really pushed transformative technology into what was already kind of an old industrial world of rubber pr- production. Um, it sounds not so high tech, but really was. It took uh, software and uh, what's an example, uh, or what what did they come up with? Or right. So, well, when my father was 16 years old, he and his cousin and my uh, grandmother started a research uh, facility that did contact research for chemical polymers still around called ARDL. By the time I was growing up, uh, he had started a company called TechPro. Both my parents actually started this company. And this was in the early 80s. And TechPro's main contribution was to put personal computers onto factory process control uh, tools. At the time, it was all analog devices or mainframe computers. So bringing you know, old factory testing equipment into the computer age, the personal computer age. In some ways, when you hear a bit more about nanotronics, you'll hear that we're doing this again, but you know, with the next generation of technologies, which is artificial intelligence and some other computational things. But uh, so I, I grew up in this world. I was running... Uh, density tests with a, a, a quality control test on my kitchen table when I was eight years old when they started this company. <laughs> no, so that's cool. doing doing constant control and quality control. It's rotating <laughs> goes back my whole life. Um, but I actually didn't study as an undergrad. Uh, I didn't study science or engineering. Uh, I actually was a music and a theater major and moved to New York and directed plays and produced plays and played the piano unsuccessfully. Um, but as I was producing and doing management, I realized that business is just business unless you're making something that's creative. I wanted to have a creative contribution on the world. Um, and what really interested me and where I found that I could do that was in science. So it's sort of an intro to it through the family business. 
Um, so I also went back to grad school, got a PhD in applied physics. So I was lucky enough um, to be doing science both in academia while being a leader in business. Uh, went to where to to starting nanotronics. Interesting. So did you start nanotronics? That was that 2007. But you know that's a a more complicated question (laughs) than it would sound. So the previous company, TechPro, was acquired in 2008. Um, So and and we really didn't start nanotronics as a real business, uh, where we had actual people working for us and making something until around 2010. But the idea had been something that had been brewing and had been working on for really since 2000. Um, so, you know, I, after having sold the company, I was working in academia and I really wanted to prove out some of the ideas that I had had for all of those years. So, um, my family put the first money into starting nanotronics. Um, and once that was proven out, we actually, you know, started to raise money, grew as a company, and started to sell to the customers. Those are, I guess our first customer was 2011. Okay, gotcha. And I'd like to hear more about uh, how you kind of developed the tech for nanotronics. But uh, I, I was curious with their, I mean, you have a, a very interesting background, and it's kind of unusual. I mean, you got a PhD in applied physics, which is not easy, but you also have the artistic theater background. Like, do, do you... Yeah, I don't know. Do you think you see the world a little differently than some folks um, who just go straight technical science? Uh, I'm sure that I see the world differently for good or for bad. <laughs> yeah, for, than, <laughs> good point. All right. Than most people do. <laughs> but yeah, I mean, I, you know, I um, to give you an idea, uh, I am on the board of uh, a nonprofit in Brooklyn called Pioneer Works, and Pioneer Works is the best artist. We have a museum space. We have art residencies. We have music studios. Where you know, we do excellent music recordings in a publishing house. And I work out of this space at least half of the time, even doing nanotronics work. I'm there doing nanotronics work. Uh, but I find it incredibly important to have this kind of cross-disciplinary inspiration. Uh, I think that I, I'm a better businessman, a better technologist, better scientist, if I'm also exploring the world from the angle of art. Huh, interesting. I like that. So why do you think you're better? Have you thought about it? I you, have thought, yeah. I've thought about it, and it's one of those things that, you know, you you could speculate on why, why there are connections between music and physics, and I, I mm. tend to not do that. I, I tend to... Uh, allow myself to be purely human in those moments, and what comes of it comes of it. Most of most of the work of a scientist is extremely analytical and trying to, you know, you you have to prove or disprove. You have to you have to do the experiments and see if the experiment succeeds. The the nature of just pure exploration. I want to keep that as pure as possible. So while I may have some ideas of parts of my brain that it activates while playing the piano, then it doesn't so much matter to me as long as it happens. Hmm. Interesting. Okay. I like that. Uh, so let's go back to, you said, you know, you started nanotronics, kind of the technology development way back in 2000. And so 
yeah, I guess. Well, maybe, I, maybe, I, I started Nanotronics in 2010, 2011. Okay. I started thinking of the ideas and working okay. through some of the <laughs> ideas back then. So maybe uh, walk us. Well, first, maybe uh, if you could describe Nanotronics to everyone, that'd be helpful. And then kind of walk us through, you know, um, starting the starting the company, um, you know, f- around 2010, how that all kind of transpired, and that would be great. Right. So, you know, I'll, I'll start with your second question a little bit first to give yeah. you a, an idea of, you know, where I come from and why we're doing this. I think I was in this fortunate place to be both frustrated by industry and frustrated in academia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that was by a problem um, that I really wanted to see nanotechnology become a reality. Um not only did I want to, if you could have said maybe it was a reality in certain ways, but it wasn't a technological revolution. Uh, and when I talk about nanotechnology, what I mean is to be able to build things at the molecular level and the ability to see those things is incredibly important. You can't build something if you can't visualize that thing. Um, so if we build things from molecules precisely, then it's impossible to to do that without bridging the gap between seeing things that are nanometer scale um, that go far beyond what light can see, um, you know, visible light, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, and then also to see very large things, which are the things that you're making, that you're building. Uh, so looking for, you know, our, our chief revenue officer, Justin, um, who likes to call this that were a Swiss Army knife for inspection. Um, and one way you can think of that is that we can see, classify, detect features, things from a nanometer up through meters. Um, and we, we could do a lot of things with those. Uh, that's not the way things are normally done. Um, so, you know, I, you know, we after several years trying to boil it down to one sentence of what Neurotronics does, which by the way, to your audience who are, you know, raising money, for instance, having a single sentence to describe a complex company is still really important. <laughs> and <laughs> Good I think I think I I think I came up with one or I, I maybe Justin or somebody else in the company came up with it just a couple months ago after all of these years. Um they say that we, we combine computational super resolution, artificial intelligence, and robotics to make the world's most sophisticated microscope. Um, now, even that isn't completely descriptive of what we do. Uh, a microscope, there are certain tendencies to think about what a microscope is, something you use in school, you look at through your eyes, or something that's used in a very high-tech lab. We're actually a, uh, you know, we're a factory tool. Uh, so it it's a very different sort of. I, I think it's a very different way of thinking about microscopy. Interesting. Okay. Yeah, and there, there's a a lot to that uh, that one sentence we, to unpack. Um, sure. And so, oh, what? But before we jump into that sentence, I was curious if you could yep. give an example of a, what what's a t- typical use case or a um, a customer, and what do you do for them that somebody else couldn't do. Yeah, so the, if you think of, I, I don't know if you've ever been in a semiconductor fab before, but a semiconductor fab is 
the cleanest place um, on the planet. Uh, you know, space is cleaner, um, but you know, deep space is cleaner. But other than deep space, <laughs> a semiconductor fab is the cleanest place on the planet. And to make it such, it's the most expensive real estate that you can have. Uh, you can imagine every square foot is requires an incredible amount of money to build. So a semiconductor fab can cost 15 to $20 billion. Um, and in, in these fabs, you, even though this is the, the most high-tech things in the world being made, it's made in kind of an assembly line process. So there are up to 300 layers in a process to make a semiconductor. Um, and during that, it goes from one station, the wafer goes from one station to the next. It's inspected at different, with different types of tools at each of those stations down a very long uh, line until eventually it's, it's diced, created, made into chips, and then it's released uh, and sold. Um, that's the traditional way of doing things. What we want to do is actually reduce the footprint of the fab and re- get away from this assembly line mentality and instead be a single bay where production machines can just feed and automate into our tool. So in a very small area, we can do all of the types of inspection that required a lot of different types of extremely expensive instrumentation and also involved a lot of human inspection um, and quite honestly, not the most uh, fun job to work in a clean room atmosphere. Uh, so we provide automation that you know, it works 24 hours a day um, and takes up less space. So the the real goal is to make semiconductor fabs less expensive, to have this information gathered in such a way uh, that it provides for better yields and therefore can be that money that, that companies are saving and making can be put back into the company in order to do new research and have a faster iteration to do design. So that's one thing just within the semiconductor industry. This is the extreme of that is I always say, you know, I, uh, wouldn't it be exciting to think that the next great in, 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 innovative company that comes out of the dorm room isn't a Facebook, but is a semiconductor fab. Huh. Um, so this is, uh, I think the end goal to something like this. Uh, but the technology, this can apply to, to any type of production, whether it's pharmaceuticals or even going back to my roots of mixing nanoparticles into rubber. Interesting. Um, I like that, that vision of a college kid uh, developing a, a, the next generation <laughs> fab. That's good. But I, And so what, so what does your uh, product or how how does it do it, and what does it do? Is it mainly for inspection purposes? And it sounds like it it does a whole lot because you're replacing a lot of functionality um, that's already there. So, yeah, how does it work? Okay, well, to to the first one, I'd only say that inspection is a bigger thing than we tend to think of it just by hearing the word inspection. The goal is not to say whether something is good or bad, or works or doesn't work. Uh, the goal is to be able to see as much as you can see in order to assign causality to why something is doing something. So if, if along the process you can do that, you can fix problems 
if there were defects or if there were issues during the processing, or you can iterate your design and make your design different in order to accommodate for that. So that's this sort of feedback loop that makes it more than just inspection, which the I think the connotation comes to mind is this is good, I'm going to keep it, this is bad, I'm going to fail it. So that's sort of, I don't know, the that makes first thing I want to put out, yeah. put out yeah. there. Um, but to go back to sort of the first sentence of what we do, competition, super resolution, artificial intelligence, and robotics. So the simple resolution, I think of as sort of a way of checking physics by using computation. Um, I hate to say that because you don't exactly trick physics. Uh, there's no law of physics we break. But for every pragmatic purpose, we get around something called the Abbey limit, which is the diffraction limit of light, um, by using a combination of movement of light, uh, of movement of objects, and by using some detection algorithms. Um, by doing that, you're able, you're able to use something that is extremely common that takes up large areas, which is white light, just any white light that you're used to with a microscope with, you know, LEDs and be, be able to resolve in the nanometer scale. Uh, that's what we call super resolution and it's fairly unique. Um, so the, the AI, we use AI, um, you know, AI is really, you know, it's the use of computer algorithms that are based on the way the brain learns. Um, you know, we're all used to how this works for Google searches or for Amazon recommendations already. What people aren't used to is this working in industrial imaging. Uh, and we could get, dig deeper into AI if you'd like. But this sort of all comes together through the use of robotics in order to have precision automation that allows our instruments to do things that humans alone just can't do. We don't have the dexterity for it. Makes sense. And so with the, the AI component, are you essentially um, using it to, you know, visualize and, you know, defects or whatever it might be um, and then kind of have those uh, models continually learn and update based on, you know, if they're working on a, a chip or, or if they're working on LEDs or how do you uh, use the AI? Yeah, I you know, um, by using AI, we don't just um, make users smarter. Um, we make the machine smarter. Uh, and you do that by you know, having this, this set of initial parameters. You say, maybe I just want to look at things that are a certain size or a certain shape, but it's very simply defined. And you know, the algorithm will run and, you know, distinguish, you know, those based on that parameter, just do a pass of it. Then it allows a human to start the training process. So you go in, use a number of visualization tools. You can go in and uh, choose either a defect or a feature or a certain shape and call it something. And once you've done that, it goes into a library and you can continue and it keeps improving uh, the probability that it will identify these correctly. If you get to the point where it identifies them the way that a human does, and then if you're building up enough training data from similar, uh, you know, similar type uh, data sets, there's actually something called transfer learning, so that 
you know, the, your your AI actually can get pragmatically better than an individual human can. Interesting. Makes sense. Um, and probably a, probably a lot faster. <laughs> well, I, I mean, it's, it's not even faster. It's that humans could not be, could not do it. Um, I mean, you, you can imagine, you know, looking at, you know, something that is, if you have a 300 millimeter you know, wafer and you're looking at areas, you know, you're looking at something, um, you know, Eight million pixels, and you look at twenty thousand, know, twenty thousand of those yeah. over a single wafer, and this is this is not even something. This is orders of magnitude beyond what humans can even comprehend in size of of data. So it's it's not that we it's not even that we do it slow. It's that it it's actually impossible for the human yeah. mind to do. That makes sense. And and can you? Can you give a quick overview on Nanotronics? Uh, if you, if you uh, disclose any of us, like a number of employees, or um, you're located in Brooklyn, New York, <laughs> I didn't, I forgot to mention that. But uh, um, yeah, number of employees, yeah. revenue, or any any uh, stats. Just right. Well, some of it, you know, we're, we're a little bit private of about, course. but I'll give you a rough. I'll yes. give you some some rough numbers. So we're actually located in three different places. I'm not a Brooklyn, New York, um, where we have. A lot of uh, our software engineers, uh, like computer vision experts and program, you know, programmers working in AI, um, and also our, our executives. Um, we're in um, Akron, Ohio, which I told you a little bit about my background from Akron. Uh, and we do we have this role called solutions architecture. The people that work directly with customers' um, applications, uh, we have technical service out of Akron. And then we have our robotics facility, which is called Nanotronics Automation, which is a company that we acquired last year. Uh, it was called Franklin, um, and that is in Hollister, California. So, and there's about 60 employees roughly right now. Nice. Okay. Um, uh, we have, you know, over 50 nanotronics customers, and that's just, those aren't the ones we inherited from the automation company. Those are, you know, full, in, full. Oh instruments that we've sold. And we really have only started a marketing effort in August when uh, our Sierra came on board. So, you know, we have to be growing really quickly now. Well, that's impressive because that's from uh, 2011? Yes. Yeah, yeah, that's that's good. And um, and do you uh, publicly disclose the, the costs of a one of your typical machine? It's probably not always typical of cost and... Um, and the, you know how big are these machines that you install? Yeah, so you know the price the the price to a customer varies depending on uh, you know features, of course. Uh, but we so our least expensive uh, instrument that doesn't it doesn't do all of the automation that we talked about in robotics is about fifty five thousand dollars. Our typical Semiconductor fab tool is around two hundred thousand dollars, so it's that type of range. What, and it, the the thing about the the instrument, I'm sorry, just to get to your question about size. If you think of a normal inspection tool, it you know it's half of a room. Yeah. Um. Yeah. And and it's millions of dollars, by the way. You know, millions of dollars. So these prices that you know are more expensive than an iPhone, of course, are <laughs> not expensive for a, a fab. 
Um, so, uh, and they fit on the table, you know, on the table, on the tabletop. So it's, you know, something that is like wow. a microscope that you'd be used to. So it's, it's a really different way of envisioning what an inspection tool is. Huh. And how that, yeah, that's, that's crazy. I was expecting much larger and more expensive. <laughs> um, and, and we like, and we like to make it smaller. I mean, that's the idea. Yeah. Is, is it, if we're, if we're going to do a factory in a dorm room, we're going to have to go even smaller. Yeah. How how many of these would a like a large uh, microchip company or factory would need? To... Uh, you know, hard to say. I mean, okay. it, it could it could be up to hundred. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Makes sense. And and who was your uh, who was your first customer? So this is kind of a funny story because I and I, I didn't even. I didn't know we were going to go into the semiconductor industry at all. I didn't have okay. a background in semiconductor. I was working on soft materials, polymers, nanofillers. Uh, and one of our so a friend and the first angel investor that came on board had a friend at a party who said I was who he was telling me a little bit about us and this technology that we were working on and researching. He said, oh, I work for this company that that would love this. So they, they they make you know high uh, you know energy efficient power devices, and went and visited them. Well, they said it's just something that you could use your your instrument for. And our instrument was so new. I mean, it was really a research tool. And they said there's just a couple problems, and why the industry hasn't been able to deal with it. Uh, it's completely transparent. And so, you know, a little bit, you know, maybe a little reflective. No, completely hmm. on the visual spectrum of being invisible. <laughs> and yeah. somehow we need to have a system that can focus on, excuse <coughs> me, they can focus on the backside, the middle, and the top, and distinguish up to 30 different types of crystalline defects. <laughs> and this is something that these were, you know, this is something for making, you know, Really energy efficient, sort of a high high band, wide band gap material. That big instrument companies and industry leaders had ignored because of these challenges. So I said, "Yes, yeah, sure, we can do it." And then that's when we needed to scale up and hire people and actually build the machine. Interesting, interesting. So since then, you know that since then this customer bought several instruments and their suppliers, and so it, it kind of went from there, and we became a semiconductor supplier. That's the only reason. We huh. could have been in biotech to start with. We could have been in any. Uh, this is who came to us with a need that nobody else was addressing. Uh, so it was, I think, an ideal place for us to be. And, and what other industries are you in now? Well, so I, I would say most of our business is in some type of electronics like this. Okay. So, um, but then we have our you know, we sort of outreach into others. So we've sold instruments for infectious disease. We've sold them for cancer research. Uh, we. How does it work uh, in those? Well, that's interesting. How does it work in those areas? Sorry to interrupt. <laughs> how sure. Does it, how does it work in infectious disease? What, what, so, is it, what do you do? Yeah. Yeah. So it, it's so simple that it's <laughs> in, in a little bit, it's not simple to do, but it's a say, uh, you know, viruses are extremely small. And one of the big problems with 
you know, uh, drug delivery, you know, drug delivery systems is being able to target those things that are small. So you have to see it. You have to be able to figure out, uh, the exact concentration of the drug delivery system versus the inert material that, that makes up the drug that goes, goes to the target. And this is actually the same with a cancer delivery system that we've worked with, uh, a researcher and a company on. Uh, it, it just has to be fine-tuned on the scale that hadn't been possible without us enabling it. So this is something, obviously, for the betterment of humanity, for myself, for everybody, that's something I'd like to do more of. Uh, you know, I need to force myself to stay focused on uh, <laughs> yes. industries that are taking up a lot of our time already. But I think eventually we'll be doing much more of those, that type of work. Interesting. So could you help almost... Uh... With infectious disease diagnose, I mean, could you uh, identify whatever uh, virus it might be? Or, I mean, not you, but the researcher using your device. Well, the, the certainly the researcher using your device could. My end goal would be that the computer, that you know, that the instrument itself could do. So, um, yep, that's yep. when we get back to AI. Yep. Is that uh, another place where you know human pathologists? Um, are, you know, they're prone to all the other problems that we have as humans. We have the best intentions. We have really good instincts for the, if we're trained. Um, sometimes humans have very horrible instincts, but, uh, but really good pathologists have good instincts. Uh, we don't have the ability to see enough and count enough and to, and this is, you know, we'd like to augment the human in this case and be better. We don't just want to provide a tool so that people can image things. And I think that that would be our our goal moving forward in that area. Interesting. Oh, that's fascinating. Never would have expected that, but I mean, it makes sense. And and sorry, I interrupted. You were talking about some other other any other uh, other industry any other industries you want to mention? Uh, no, it, it really and the nanotech applies to everything. So yeah, you yeah. About, from you know photovoltaics to to. Um, you know, turbines to, uh, you know, to uh, flexible screens. I mean, it's, it really applies to everything, yeah. and we have done a lot of testing for people in those areas. So a lot of it is not what I can imagine, but what other people can mm-hmm. help me imagine, that help our team imagine uh, to move into the next area. As I, as I hadn't thought about compound wideband yet, semiconducting materials, like our first customer, our, I think our next great accomplishment will be something that I won't have thought of as well. Interesting. Okay. Yeah. Uh, leads into my next question is, uh, you know, where do you want to take nanotronics over the next three to five years? And <laughs> maybe the answer is you're not sure because you have an amazing device and you, you're, uh, you know, maybe other people come with ideas, but uh, you said you want to make it smaller. Um, is there any other? Well, I, I think I've touched a little bit on this, uh, on these goals. Um, I, I, the goals are not so much just for nanotronics. They're goals for, because of nanotronics, the way that industry will look. Um, so, you know, there'd be less expensive factories due to the increases in these efficiencies. There'd be rapid design iteration. Uh, there'll be more automation. Um, this will lead to a type of abundance for the consumer that we don't currently have. And then I am interested in, you know, working on new medical innovations. 
Uh, and then, you know, we have to, you know, the business goal of, uh, you know, really taking care of uh, our customers, making sure that they have, uh, that they think of us as a partner uh, in order to make these big, sort of scary changes for them. Uh, and, you know, that all sounds super long-term, but these are both within the next three years. Huh. Interesting. And, and you just mentioned it, and I wanted to go back to it uh, about reducing manufacturing costs. And, you know, if, let's take the example of photovoltaics. You know, how, and maybe we don't know enough about that photovoltaic manufacturing process to answer this, but I guess how how do you redu- reduce the costs for no, photovoltaics? Is it because you can have that... Um, you can image on a nano level and then you have that when there's issues, you have that feedback loop that can quickly diagnose and then fix issues on the line or what? Uh, yeah, yeah, that's right. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I, I hate to just say yes, <laughs> yes but that's right. exactly it. It's being able to stand to be able to quickly have feedback. Yeah. Uh, okay. And, uh, and photo is one field that we are working in you and are. batteries as well. Okay. Oh, wow. All right. Interesting. Um, well, we're, we're getting near the end, but it, this is uh, what you have is even more interesting than I thought. I thought what you had was interesting, but now talking to you, it's even more interesting. Um, Great. Are you going to buy one by the end I, of this I kind of want to. Yeah. I kind of want to. Maybe I can get a discount. But, uh, <laughs> now, um, uh, I was going to ask about uh, so switching topics near the end here. I was curious how you uh, got involved the the um, the Teal Foundation uh, a few years ago. Yeah. Well. So I got involved with the Teal uh, Foundation before Peter Teal was an investor. So, okay. so, so that you know, Peter uh, Peter Teal has a venture fund called Founders Fund that deployed two of our funding rounds, our Series B and our Series C. And how much we raised? Uh, approximately uh, about thirty million. Okay. Uh, and so, uh, and Peter Teal, the you know, who was founder of PayPal and uh, first mentioned Facebook and so on, you know, is on our board as well, along with my father, so my father, P- Peter, and myself. The three of but, you? But, but, yeah, the three oh, of that's us. That's pretty awesome. All right. <laughs> um, that's funny. Yeah. So, uh, so they, you know, this was the, so before that, uh, I, you know, being, in these both academic, I was in the academic world, but feeling like an act, academic outsider, uh, the Teal Foundation seemed to appeal to me. Uh, this idea of finding sort of young, brilliant people who, you know, don't have the patience or the inclination to go through the academic system, but have things that are important and need to get out into the world. Uh, so I, you know, everybody kind of knows everybody. So I kind of forget how, you know, who I initially met. Uh, but I, I know that I asked to be involved with it. Uh, and, you know, I, I don't think I was a particularly helpful mentor per se, but I did get to meet some of these, uh, incredible, incredible young talents. And I do think that the Teal Foundation does really important work. Interesting. And, and that leads right into one of my last questions is, you know, who has been some of your mentors and, uh, yeah, over the, over your, 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 your past, who's helped you out? Yeah. 
so I, I think I was most lucky. At, I think it's funny. I hear a lot of people talk about uh, high school uh, teachers that influenced them. And I was lucky to have this high school music teacher, Elder uh, Meinica, who remained a friend through all of these years. Uh, she, uh, uh, you know, really, the, the thing about uh, Ellender is that she thought anything was possible for anyone. There. I wasn't a great musician. I didn't know, uh, I didn't know the great operas. She, she made this assumption that I did and I could. I learned an enormous amount from her. By coincidence, her husband, Eberhard, was a great physicist. So as I got to know them better and through the many years, you know, this was 20 years ago, 20, oh, no, this wasn't 20 years ago. This was 30 years ago. <laughs> uh, but through all of, all of these years, uh, he passed away last year. Uh, they continue to be great friends and great mentors to me, both scientifically, musically, culturally. Um, but, you know, my father was a great mentor to me and still continues to be He's a much better engineer than I have been. In fact, I'm not a good engineer at all, uh, but he's incredibly, you know, intuitive. And I learned a great deal from him about both engineering and business. So, you know, two examples, but I've had incredible mentors throughout my life. Interesting. All right. And so I got one more question, and then unfortunately, we should probably wrap it up, I guess. And so, the last sure. question is kind of a f- full circle. I was curious, going back to your your artistic days, what what was one of your favorite performances that you were involved with? Oh, something that I, did I perform? Did yeah, I perform it? Or directed or yeah, or involved with in some capacity. Yeah. Oh boy, this is good one. <laughs> you, you can uh, say, you can uh, give more than one. So do, do I have, so there, I, I, so if I go really far back, um, I, I did a, uh, a musical theater production uh, that was a professional production, even though I wasn't a professional uh, per se. I was only 16, 17 years old of uh, the musical West Side Story. And, and, and the, the dancers were from a big ballet company and the singers were opera singers and I was cast in this anyway. Huh. And it, the choreography was done this famous choreographer, Jerome Robin. And I wasn't a dancer. I wasn't a great singer. And it was the most challenging thing imaginable to be able to do this choreography. Really? Um, and I, yeah, I had a great <laughs> director and choreographer just sort of kept me, kept, kept me up every night to be able to do this. And I would never be able to repeat it again, but <laughs> I was able to, I was able to do it at the time. So it was, it was really overcoming something that I was neither physically uh, nor educationally prepared to do. So it was a huge influence on me. Since then, I've done these jazz performances with a group of really excellent free jazz musicians in New York um, that I think have been incredibly rewarding for me. Uh, just closing your eyes, playing with great musicians and uh, listening and reacting. And so those are two entirely different things. Both require a type of discipline, but completely different. Huh. Interesting. Well, Thanks for sharing that. That was a, that was a, I think a good way to wrap it up. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, I didn't. I, I I would have never expected to bring up that. Yeah. Uh, sorry, dancing. I, I do send uh, people. Uh, yeah, I send you questions, but I did not put that on there. So that was a surprise. <laughs> <laughs> but that was interesting. That was really good. Uh, 
but no, Matthew, I appreciate you uh, taking time to chat with us today. What you've uh, developed over the years is uh, quite interesting, and uh, I hope you guys do uh, super well and continue to grow. Well, thank and, you. And uh, Thank you. Come visit in Brooklyn when you're in town. Oh, yeah, that'd be great. As I said okay. before we started, uh, I love Brooklyn and New York City. Great. Uh, and, uh, and thanks, everyone, for listening to another episode. I hope you enjoyed it as much as I did. And we'll see you next time. Thanks again, Matthew. We appreciate it. Okay. Bye-bye. Bye. Hey, Ma- hey Matthew. This is Matthew Putman of Nanotronics Imaging. Please leave a message and I will get back to you as soon as possible.